Uh, Mr. President? <clears throat> You've got Oprah, Michelle, Mayor Daly all helping. Deep dish pizza, Mike Ditka, Sears Tower lapel pin. But you'd be remiss without the most influential Chicagoan there is. Chicago is a city. It's got roads and buildings, people. It's got people and, and people who sell hot dogs to those people. And it's got parks and stuff. And there's a big, big lake there. Chicago may be the second city, but we're first when it comes to having heart. And what we really would like to see happen here is have the Olympics. I think you'd like it too. It's This American Bid. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. No, of course, you're listening to In the Loop, and I'm Jeff Horwich. And Sandin, my producer, when he came in to uh, lay his hourglass upon us there, actually let me know, this was news to me, that This American Life, the radio show, is not returning to Chicago. They've been producing it in New York, where they've been working on their television show. And I guess uh, they're staying in New York. So at least we got that joke in uh, while we could, but he's no longer uh, Chicago-based. There may well be a verdict uh, by the time you hear this, but at the moment, President Obama is, of course, headed to Copenhagen, shilling for Chicago to host the 2016 Olympics. He's got uh, Oprah in tow. Mike Ditka is not along for the ride, I don't believe, but it was fun to say. The poll of the co-op versus public option debate, apparently not strong enough to keep him in this country, but something tells me they'll still be working on that when he gets back. And in fact, among other things on the show today, a short, unsolicited poem we received uh, about Max Baucus. And uh, also poems about water on the moon and uh, what seems to be the final curtain call this time for Saturn, uh, the car, not the planet. But it's a big show for listener poems, most of them uh, fairly short, but funny. Uh, plus, we'll journey to Honduras and we will play around in that narrow area of the imagination where Aquadina Jod meets Laverne and Shirley. And I'm going to take some questions uh, near the end of the show from, from one of you to see how smart I am about personal finance. And judging by my savings at the moment... Not very. Uh, but first, let's keep that Olympic spirit alive. Uh, you know, while everybody was biting their nails about the Copenhagen thing, the 2014 Gay Games were awarded this week to Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland. Uh, and we found that so interesting that we called up Michael Murphy, who is just back from Germany where he was making the final pitch. He's with the Cleveland Synergy Foundation, which is the group that headed up Cleveland's bid to land the games. Michael, good to talk with you. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. Pardon my skepticism. I'm sure it's not a brand new thing to you, but why why, and how did Cleveland land the gay games? You know, it's funny because a lot of people did say, why Cleveland? And our answer really was, why not Cleveland? And Was that your official slogan for the bid? Our official slogan <laughs> for the bid is, my games rock. Oh, okay. That's that's better than why not Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, it's a little too defensive if we said, why not Cleveland? So, <laughs> But why not Cleveland was kind of the meta question here. And uh, yeah, how did you answer it? You know, the Federation of Gay Games, who puts on the gay games every four years, they're all about change. And if we looked at our competition, Boston and D.C., they're well-known gay capitals of the world, if you will. Mm -hmm. The FGG movement was looking to affect real change. One of the best places to do it is in the Midwest, and, and that's Cleveland. Did you face some uh, skeptical questions from the committee about how, how the games and the athletes would be received in Cleveland, whether there'd be uh, any whether it might be a, a rough ride in any sense. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and that, we expected those questions. And I think the best example to answer that question was um, about two months before we went over to Germany, the site selectors from the Federation of Gay Games came to Cleveland. Part of when they came to Cleveland, they asked us to put together a community event that would show our support for the gay games being held here. And we had more than 7,000 people show out at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it was the biggest event in the rock cult history. If that's any indication of how gays and lesbians from around the world will be hosted, I think we're going to be in great shape. No doubt you're hopeful that the games themselves, and again, we're still talking four or five years out here, but that when they happen, they will uh, maybe have a, an effect on general attitudes in and around Cleveland and maybe, in, maybe through the whole Midwest, huh? No, absolutely. And you know what? We walked into this thinking that even if we didn't win the games for 2014, we had already won in the sense that change is already happening because of our bid for the Federation of Gay Games, we passed a domestic partnership registry in Cleveland to recognize same-sex couples here in Cuyahoga County. You mean the, the local government just actually stepped up? Uh, yep. Maybe they'd have done that anyway. Who knows? But it, it was seen as part of the effort to help land the games? Exactly. And when oh, city council passed it, they said, you know, this is a show of our support for the gay games coming here to 2014. And that sort of legislation here was huge. So as we were thinking about this interview, we, we went and poked around just to see what other kinds of Olympics there are. Because, of course, people are familiar with uh, the Special Olympics and the Paralympics. Um, like apparently there are also Jewish Olympics and yep. Senior Olympics. And the gay games, I guess I'd heard of them, but I hadn't, you know, I'll be honest, uh, not being gay myself, I hadn't thought much about them. So tell me about the gay games. What's the point? The point is to have an Olympic-type event, if you will, that is about inclusive that it's not just for the gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgendered community, but it's also for the straight community. And it's, a, it's up to 30 different sports, like softball and baseball, ballroom dancing. And mm. what Cleveland is bringing to the table is uh, we're doing the, the first gay rodeo ever in the history of the gay games. And not just sports, but also culture. There's arts festivals, choir festivals. It's a huge, huge event that's held every four years. Uh, Michael, been very good to talk with you. Thanks for spending a few minutes uh, filling us in on the, the gay games. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Michael Murphy's with the Cleveland Synergy Foundation, which helped to bring the gay games in 2014 to Cleveland. And next year, they're going to be in Cologne, Germany. Uh, and a little shout-out to our listener, Mark, who lives in Paris. We know he's busy uh, getting ready for those games. So let's see. After last week's big uh, blowout episode about uh, health care, here's how long we're going to spend on health insurance reform today, because I think you deserve a break. Uh, 14.6 seconds. And it comes in the form of a short poem about Max Baucus uh, that's from Than Tibbetts. And Than actually works for NPR, and uh, he's a, a buddy of ours. He works up in Moorhead and looks after a lot of online stuff for the company and is a fan of the show. And... and what the heck? We love poems from anybody. And if someone's willing to sit down and write a couple lines about Max Baucus, I'm all ears. Raucous Max Baucus, caucus of one. Tried reforming health care, but it was no fun. Said Max, public option? This bill comes undone. So Max cut it out, and nobody won. Than Tibbetts saying so much with so little and rhyming with Baucus not once but twice. Very nicely done. Doesn't surprise me Than would be good at uh, writing economically. He manages the MPR News Twitter feed and also has a Twitter feed of his own at Thanland. Twitter.com slash Thanland is where you can find that. Now, while we are celebrating poems that uh, were submitted to us uh, unsolicited over the past week, 
uh, by people who happen to also work at the company. Here's another one for you, a delightful poem from Dale Connolly. And if you listen to much public radio and if you're here in Minnesota, you've probably been listening to Dale for years. He was the host of the uh, morning show and now is the host of Radio Heartland. And Dale's poetic impulse was uh, stoked the other day by the discovery of water all across the surface of the moon. Apparently we've wondered for some time whether there was really water there, and now we have unambiguous confirmation that, yes, indeed, the moon is wet, although in trace amounts. Got Dale Connolly thinking, and uh, he sent us his poem. Water, water everywhere. There's water, and it's lunar. How might our goals in space have changed if we had found it sooner? Armstrong, Aldrin, and the rest, I wonder what they're thinking. If they had dug and sifted more, they'd still be up there drinking. The moon is cold, remote, and bleak, and there's no place there that's urban, but water transforms landscapes, if you mix it with some bourbon. The moon is not a chunk of cheese, just craters, dust, and mountains. From such a desert, Vegas sprang with gambling, shows, and fountains, and so the moon might someday be a mecca with low gravity, which will assist the building boom and all sorts of depravity. Space geology news there from Dale Connolly. You can listen to Radio Heartland 24-7 and check out his blog and stuff at radioheartland.org. Now, as many of you probably know, most of our poems do not come from people who work for the company. In fact, we're going to have one of those before we get to the end of the show here. If you get bitten by the news poem bug, uh, send it to us, please. And you can find that link to that form at the website intheloopshow.net. And now, Honduras. I know that feels like a logical leap, uh, but stick with me. I think it's going to be interesting. Many of you are probably aware there has been a bit of unrest uh, in that Central American country. Here's a quick recap. So this summer, the president, his name is Mel Zelaya, and he always wears a uh, Stetson cowboy hat. Uh, he was removed by the army, and they flew him in his pajamas and the hat, I presume, to a nearby country. And the issue was a referendum he was pushing that was going to rewrite the Constitution and uh, probably extend his term. So Zelaya hung out at the border for a while, and then a few weeks ago, he snuck back into the country in a car trunk. And at the moment, he's camping out in the Brazilian embassy. New temporary government took over, and there are elections planned uh, for the end of November. But meanwhile, this whole thing has gone uh, hemispheric, you might say. And that's mainly because the U.S. and a bunch of other countries got involved. They very quickly said, hey, this guy was elected. We don't just use the army to remove our presidents this way. That makes a certain amount of sense. Um, Honduras is this big-time dilemma, though, for the U.S., uh, and it's actually not going very well. Uh, we were looking for somebody to talk to in Honduras, and we ran across this blog. It's called Honduras Living. And it's written by a guy named Jeff Teague. Uh, he's an American, uh, but he writes it with his wife, Jasmine. And Jeff happens to be out of the country on business at the moment. But Jasmine is home in uh, Tegucigalpa, which is the capital city. And so we are calling her up to ask a little bit about living in Honduras. Hello? Hi, Jasmine. This is uh, Jeff Horwich giving you a call from In the Loop up in Minnesota. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing this morning? We're doing good, thank you. First of all, just just tell us briefly about yourself. You uh, were born and raised in Honduras, right? Yes, I was. I lived on and off about 12 years in the U.S., and for the past four years, we have been in Honduras again. Okay. And I gather from reading uh, the blog that uh, you and your husband work on that you think there are some considerable misperceptions, maybe, among those of us who are outside Honduras uh, about what has actually happened there. Yes, I believe that when ex-president uh, Zelaya was impeached, he was taken to Costa Rica. 
I think the, the, the whole world took it to be something different than it was. He turned into this martyr that everybody had to come out and help. Well, because of the way he was removed by the army, it played out like a, like a military coup, and that's the way it's still being labeled in many press accounts. I don't believe it was a military coup because he broke our laws and he was not respecting our constitution. He had to be removed from power. When he came into power, he came as a centrist. Maybe two years after his presidency, he made this huge turn and suddenly Honduras is friends with Cuba and friends with uh, Venezuela. And, you know, suddenly everybody's talking about communism, socialism, and about him expanding his term so that he can stay in power longer. And uh, having a referendum, right, to kind of rewrite the the Constitution, that's what brought this whole thing to a head? Yes, it was when he decided to, to have this referendum that it made people nervous. If he had this referendum, automatically our Congress would have been dissolved. Now, Melzalai was was elected, and he was removed through a process other than an election. And on that very basis, it it, it looks sketchy that, that he's not still in office. He was removed by an order from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court issued the order. Congress approved the order. The, the vote, I believe, was like 127 to 1. Do you see this as uh, the Honduran people and the Honduran Supreme Court and Congress standing up and trying to prevent the country from turning into another Venezuela? Yes, I think this was their last effort. When he was removed from power, when he was arrested, that was the day that we were supposed to be having the referendum. If that that referendum had been carried out, you know, we wouldn't be a democracy anymore. I, I think people have, they listen to the news from June 28th on, but nobody takes a look at all the the, the things that led up to this point. And maybe that's the scary part. You know, after he left and after he was arrested, they uh, actually opened up the ballots for this referendum. And they found that the ballots had already been filled out. We never even had the referendum. Wow. So that that's what's what's been reported there. Uh, do you feel like uh, the country has averted something major here or is um, is this still not not over? I think it's coming to an end. I think we're lucky in a way. This is a small price to pay, this turbulence that we're going to have. It's just a small price to pay to be able to live in a democracy. And, I, and yes, I do believe that if the, the outside world had not interfered, it would have been an open and shut case. It, you know, he would have been removed and we would have gone on with our lives. Do you think the U.S. screwed up here and screwed up big? Yes, I do. I have a lot of love for the U.S. You know, we have proved that we, we have been a good friend. When they decided to go into war with Iraq, Honduras was one of the few countries that actually sent troops. That's true. And finally, I just want to ask you about uh, daily life there. Does it feel like there's a state of emergency in place? Can, can you move around? Can you live your life and take your kids where you need to take them? You know, believe it or not, life is completely normal as if nothing had happened. They have the state of emergency, but you can go anywhere in the city. They don't have riots. They don't have demonstrations. The only place that you really can't go to right now is around the Brazilian embassy where, you know, they have 
the army there, and it's about uh, two blocks all the way around. But then even that, you know, the people that actually live in those two blocks, they actually have access to their houses. Jasmine, it's been very good to talk with you. Thank you so much for making some time for us. No, thank you for calling. We really appreciate the interest in what's happening in Honduras. Okay, Jasmine Teague on the phone from Tegucigalpa. The blog is hondurasliving.blogspot.com. Now, the thing about the stuffed ballot boxes for the referendum, uh, and there are additional assertions floating around that uh, the stuffed ballot boxes were actually flown in, pre-stuffed, from Venezuela. While these things are being widely discussed, they may be true. Uh, We have been poking around a good bit. We haven't found any news reports from the AP or anyone else yet actually confirming those facts. Uh, at least among the English language stuff that we can access anyway. We'll keep our eyes out, uh, and you are certainly welcome to send us anything that you might see. So, uh, as you might say on the BBC, uh, let's continue our focus on international news now with Iran. And this week uh, has been just, I don't know, disorienting when it comes to that stuff. The nuclear talks just wrapped up in Geneva. And suddenly everybody's feeling good. Uh, We're all going to talk again at the end of this month. Uh, Maybe some inspectors can come in. But that comes after this infuriating week-long period where Iran suddenly reveals a big enrichment plant they'd never talked about before. And then they test-fired a bunch of missiles. There are so many surprises. And this conversation with Iran just lurches around. It's like, what playbook are these guys calling from? And are they working us? Or at least uh, they think they're working us. And that is the origin of this tune, where Iranian nuclear negotiations somehow meet the theme song from Laverne and Shirley. You thought you knew what we were doing. Now who knows what else we're brewing. What kind of crazy things we'll do? Yes, doing it our way. You know we've got our second sight and long-range missiles aren't you frightened? But shouldn't we have nuclear power too? Like you! Yes, doing it our way. All these years of hoping, wishing. Silly daydreams now seem possible This time there's no stopping us We're gonna make it Much more fun to keep you guessing Are we bluffing or BSing? You're not sure who you're talking to And we'll do it our way, yes our way Make all our dreams come true, gonna do it our way, yes, our way, make all our dreams come true for me and you. You know, I like to think that negotiating with us is kind of like having bilateral talks uh, with Gollum. Is it Gollum? Is it Smeagol? You're not entirely sure he's being straight with you. Well, we get prepared for action. The Holocaust's a nice distraction. Yes, did it happen? I'm not sure. Are you doing it our way? Holding talks and holding war games. In the same way. Wouldn't have believed it possible. This time, there's no stopping us. We're gonna make it. We told you all there is to tell you. Oh, and we've got this bridge to sell you. We'll text you when there's something new. And, 
and we'll do it our way, yes, our way. Make all our dreams come true, gonna do it our way, our way. Make all our dreams come true for me and you. For the two of us, not for you. And thank goodness I watched Disney's Aladdin so many times as a kid, or I would have no idea how to do a Middle Eastern accent. Right. Anyway, uh, the video, as is so often the case, uh, the bizarre video is up at uh, loopfacebook.net if you want to check it out. And also on Facebook, we, I posted the other day a question. I said, is it just me, or are you all getting a little bit sick of questions about the economy? Because every week we come in and we try and think about what we can ask uh, our listeners about, our Facebook community and the people who are on our uh, our email list, in our network, as we say. And uh, the economy keeps coming up because, of course, it is so omnipresent in the news and has been for so long. And it also is something that, unlike um, you know many aspects of foreign policy, for example, uh, we all live with personally day in and day out. So we've been asking a lot of questions about the economy. And I suspect and I intuit some economy fatigue out there among you all. And so Satan and I are going to try and uh, redouble our efforts, buckle down, and come up with some other things, non-economy related, uh, that we can ask you about in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, we have had a couple of questions floating out there, and, and let me just roll through them here. One is, uh, what did you learn? Have you picked up any money-saving skills, skills with a Z, of course, by going through uh, the mega recession, recession orama, whatever you want to call it, that you may continue to practice uh, even as time's get better. Uh, Kathy writes, uh, go to the $3 movie theater. It's just as good as the regular one. Kay, who I think is here in uh, Minnesota, because this is a fixture of uh, Minnesota retail, says, check out Arc Value Village before you buy anything. Except, Kay says, for underwear and diapers. Go somewhere else. For that. Lucy, uh, who I think is in Duluth, right, Lucy, uh, says, no television equals no ads equals no desire to buy things in the ads, which is why Lucy has not hooked up her government converter box yet and maybe never will. And then finally, from Judith, Judith tells us she has learned that radish greens are edible. And, she writes, uh, the plums that are produced by flowering cherry trees are edible and easily gleaned from common areas in my community, which in Judith's case is Las Vegas. So, if you're wandering around Las Vegas and you see cherry trees uh, and they're flowering and they also happen to have plums on them, I don't entirely follow this, uh, but you can pick those plums and eat them up on a salad with your radish greens. And the other economy-related question we've had for you that's been floating around out there, I think we pitched this out last week, is if indeed the recession is over, and they're telling us that it quite likely is over on a technical basis, and things start improving, what would you like to get back to? Or what have you maybe been putting off while we've been in the uh, in the doldrums here? Uh, for many of you, not surprisingly, a survey says... A job. That is certainly fair, and I apologize that this question for many of you functioned as... Um, kind of a reminder of your unemployment. Uh, other people said they'd like to get back to health insurance, uh, house maintenance, dates with my husband, someone wrote. Uh, oh, that was my wife. Uh, no, that was not my wife. Uh, we heard from Natalie on our Facebook page who wrote that when things improve, she wants to move uh, back to Chicago because Arizona, well, without going into details here that might uh, anger the rest of you in Arizona, it's not working for Natalie. And Chicago, as we heard uh, at the beginning of this episode, as a matter of fact, uh, 
is awesome. We also heard an interesting response from another Natalie. This is Natalie Ehalt, and she is here in our neck of the woods in Minneapolis. Natalie is an avid photographer, and when the recession ends for her, she would like to go back to shooting pictures on film. I used to do photography only with film, and I was kind of like against the idea of having a digital camera because I thought that really took some of the art out of it. Now I am a full-time volunteer through the AmeriCorps VISTA program, so I get a stipend based on the poverty level. When I really started noticing, you know, oh, I have to make a budget now, and it was like, well, that's sort of out of the budget. You might pay 24 bucks if you want to get film developed, and that's just really not something I can afford at the time. I guess that's where I'm making the cuts is creative endeavors. <laughs> Aw, Natalie, that is so sad. I hope you're still taking uh, creative if slightly pixelated uh, when you look at them very closely, uh, pictures with your digital camera. Speaking of financial tips and tricks, Murray Schweitzer is on the phone with me. Murray, uh, how are things out where you are? It's nice and warm here today. How are things where you are? Oh, man, it's getting it's getting cold. The summer is brutally over here in Minnesota, and you're in the, the D.C. area. And yes. Murray, for everybody who, who doesn't recall from, what, six months ago when we <laughs> talked to him last in the show, uh, you're a, a, a television producer focusing on consumer-type issues. Correct, yes. And uh, we talked to you in the past about all the, some of the latest uh, consumer trends and news, and today we're going to flip things around. Normally when I call people, uh, I'm the one with the questions, but uh, Murray had this idea after we talked last time that maybe he would quiz me on, um, what, kind of my financial savviness, or, or how are we going to frame this quiz today? Murray? Consumer IQ quiz. Your, your producer tells me you're the smartest guy in town, and I said I was going <laughs> to find out if that's true. Yes, I think he may have been uh, slightly facetious when he was telling you that. Uh, I, I am a former business reporter, which, well, we'll find out just how much that counts for. And you're a... Um, uh, adjunct professor teaching journalism a couple of places too, so you're, you're you're qualified to administer a test. Exactly, I do tests all the time. Okay, well maybe everybody listening in, I hope will learn uh, a thing or two. I'm sure I will as we proceed here. So why don't you start us off? Okay, question number one: True or false? Federal law says all pharmacies must charge the same price for prescription drugs. True or false? I kind of think that makes sense, so I'm going to say true. It's false. Pharmacies can charge uh, different prices for prescription drugs, which is why consumers uh, can save money if they shop around. Really? How much can one save, say, if I need to get Lipitor from you know one pharmacy or another? Depending on how many uh, medications you're taking, it can amount to you know a couple hundred bucks a month you can save if you shop around. And Walmart really shook things up when it came up with $4 drug prescriptions. Oh, that's true. Sure, shopping around for prescription drugs. Not something go. I'd have thought of. A good recession uh, lesson for everybody. Uh, Next question. Okay, Ready? what else you got? All right. True or false? If you co-sign a loan, you are responsible for 50% of the debt. Um, my best guess is that if you co-sign a loan, you're responsible for all of it, potentially. So I would say false. You're right. And what's more, uh, your credit card can be harmed if the debt is later unpaid. So when parents are signing, co-signing for children or f for other relatives, they're putting their own credit on the line. Yeah, because they got to go after somebody. That's the whole point of the co-signing <laughs> arrangement, I would think. Exactly. So that if uh, if you can't pay, your your unwitting buddy uh, has to pay up. Uh, very good. Okay. True or false? If you're ordering furniture. It's safest to pay the down payment with a check so you'll have a record of the transaction. True or false? Oh, let me think about that one for a moment. Did 
Did you think now my, I'm, I'm thinking, um, now my credit card seems to do a pretty good job. If I look online, it's showing me a ledger of, of transactions. Um, that seems like a record of it. Would, would that count? So I, I, would, I would say false. You're correct. Uh, actually, the safest way to pay for that is with a credit card, but it's because if the store goes out of business or if there's a problem with the uh, furniture, you can contest the charge. But if you pay with a check and the store goes out of business, you'll never get your money back. Do credit cards universally offer that kind of uh, purchase protection? Yes. They do. And it's in the little stuff at the bottom of the monthly statement. Now, I've seen that fine print, and I, I always thought I was special. I had a credit card that gave me special powers. But well, that too. Apparently. <laughs> I may still be special in many, many ways, uh, but that is not one of them. All right, keep them coming. All right, next one. True or false? You have 20 to 25 days to pay your credit card bill after receiving your monthly statement. That is true, because lately I'm, I'm waiting that... <laughs> that 25 days just about every time. That You're correct. Uh, typically, people think they have 20 to 25-day grace period after they receive the bill, and that is not the case. Mm. You have 20 to 25 days from the date on your monthly statement. Right. And I've always thought of that, that lovely uh, grace period as being essentially kind of not free money, but it's just it, it's it's time when at zero interest, you can sort of sit on it. You don't have to, don't have to pay, which was, is nice until... You start carrying a balance, and then that that lovely benefit of the grace period really is pretty irrelevant, I've found. That's right, and credit card companies um, have arranged it so the grace periods get shorter and shorter. And that's what all these laws coming up uh, on credit card rules, uh, some of them we're going to address. It starts in February, and a big change comes next July. Hmm. Uh, all right, let's keep going. All right. True or false, you should always close credit card accounts you do not use. True or false? That's a very interesting one because I've I've heard conflicting things on it. On the one hand, I've heard that extra credit cards on your account ding your credit because they're just they're outstanding potential obligations or something like that. And on the other hand, I've heard that if you don't have enough open cards in your account, that hurts your credit too. So... And the question, your, your answer was phrased as always, right? Always close credit card accounts yes. you do not use. I would say that that is false. Always seems a little strong to me. That's You're false. correct again, but it's because doing so reduces the amount of credit you have available, and that can reduce your credit rating. So if you have $50,000 of credit available on several cards and you close one down and lose $10,000 of credit, now you have $40,000 of credit available, Mm -hmm. and that can lower your credit rating. Hmm. So the old uh, Visa card with the Duke Blue Devil on it that I somehow picked up, you know, from some some card table outside a football game back in college that I think is still, I don't know where the card is, but I think that account is still open. It's okay. Leave it there. Keep it open. They'll close it if they want to, but you can, you keep it open. Okay. Are we up to our last question now? We are. All right. Hit me. Ready? Yep. True or false, you should make sure your retirement savings are on track before you save money for your kids' college education. True or false? Hmm. I'm going to go with uh, false. Nope. It's true huh. because there are always loans to pay for college but not for retirement. So you have to fund your retirement first before you start putting money money away for your kids' college education. I've built my entire future around taking out retirement loans. What are you talking about? I think I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you got extra credit cards, so maybe it'll work for you, but not That's for right. most people. What's the rule of thumb while we're talking about this? And I've been thinking about it because I've got a, a young 
son. When should you start thinking about saving for uh, college? I would say the day after that child is born, the way college costs are. If your child is going to be a superstar football player, you probably don't have to worry about it. But for most of us, it's really something you have to work on. Well, mine is going to be in the NBA because I'm quite confident that he's, they, that he's going to be at least a good foot taller than I am. So he's, You're fine. And, he's and just don't sign, uh, co-sign any loans for me. <laughs> Murray, how did I do? Uh, I think Sandin's keeping track, Jeff. Oh, yes. Oh, San- so Sandin- I'll just brief you real quick, Murray. He got two wrong. That's it. You got an 80. An 80? So You got 80 percentile. That's pretty good. Is that good? How would I do in one of your uh, one of your college courses? Well, at 70 percentile, we'd have to have a meeting after class to talk about your work. <laughs> 80 is fine. Of course, I'm, I'm looking for A's here, so 90 or 100 would be way better. Yeah. Okay. Well, Murray, thanks very much. It's great to talk with you again. This was a, this was a terrific idea. I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you. That's Murray Schweitzer. He's a uh, producer at NBC4 TV in Washington, D.C., focusing on consumer issues, also an adjunct professor of journalism at Georgetown and American universities. Another little bit of economic news. I pick up the paper this morning, and Saturn is going away, the car company. Do you remember how many months ago was it when they first announced uh, GM that they were getting rid of Saturn as part of their bankruptcy restructuring, and we discovered that many of you, dear listeners, uh, love your Saturns. Lots of people really like Saturns. They like the company, they like the cars, and uh, so we talked to you about that at the time. Well, there was a deal to buy it. Uh, this race car driver guy, former race car driver who has a bunch of car dealerships, he was going to buy Saturn, keep it going. But in the 11th hour, and I would say even maybe like the 11th hour, 59 minutes, uh, the deal to buy Saturn from GM fell apart. And so it looks as if Saturn is going bye-bye. Lickety split, as fast as the news cycle, Aaron Bells, who writes poems for us every now and then from out in uh, Los Angeles, dropped one for us on our in-the-loop voicemail, marking the passing of the Saturn brand. Like a rock. At last we come to a time when there's no such thing as Saturn, when we confess it was a GM invention all along, a fiction. And so we contemplate Chevy, good old Chevrolet flagship of American auto companies, dear durable Chevrolet, our friend. With its Caprice and its Nova, its Corvette and Camaro, its Malibu and Silverado, Oh, it's Silverado and Tahoe. We think of rumbling around the country in you, of your springy bench seats and metal seatbelt buckles that slide, slide, click together, as if by magic, to hold our bodies back from peril in case of an accident. And we think of parking you in the shade, on a lovely street somewhere safe and friendly, and this, this is not Saturn. This is not plastic fenders. It's steel, and it's who we are. Aaron Bells, leaving that on our in-the-loop voicemail for us. His collected book of poems is called The Bird Hoverer, and you can learn more about him at bells, B-E-L-Z, dot net. The show was produced today by Sandon Totten and myself, of course, with some help from Anna Wegel. And I will leave you with one other little take on the Saturn situation and this uh, I created back when we were first talking about the demise of Saturn and then it was rendered uh, irrelevant by events or incorrect, as a matter of fact. But now it is correct again, and this may be the final performance, and I can put it to bed after this, a little musical celebration of Saturn to send you Saturn owners off into the world with a spring in your step. Here you go. One, two. Oh, wow, wow, Saturn, it's been fun while it lasted 24 hours. And lots of other brands just can't compare. Plastic doors, you're a really decent guy. You make cars we want to buy. 
But sometimes you know life just isn't fair. Life isn't fair. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Jeff Horwich. I'll talk to you next week.